You know, each of us have burdens that, that are pressing on our life. And, you know, things like you know, illness and, and struggles with employment and, and financial difficulties, I mean, those, those things can be heavy. But probably most of us, and if I ask you, what are you waiting on the Lord to do? Many of us, our minds go to an individual, somebody that we know, that we're waiting to see them come to the Lord or come back to the Lord. So who comes to your mind? Is it a family member? Friend, a parent, a child, spouse? Somebody that you would say that you are waiting to see them get back to the Lord. I want us to pray for those people now, corporately. And I want us to pray with with expectant hope. Hope is a confident expectation. That's what hope is. So when we pray, we're praying in hope. We're praying that... And that is not, you know, like, oh, I hope this will happen. That is confidently expecting that God can do this work. Confidently expecting that there is nobody who is beyond the reach of God. Confidently expecting that the Spirit of God can come and convict any sinner that they need Jesus. Confidently expecting that a miracle can happen in an individual's life. Who comes to your mind? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. Individually, Lord, you know each one of us. We do stand amazed at your character, at your power. That your omniscience, Lord, that you know every single person here. And you know our heart. And you know where we may be hurting today. Lord, right now, in hearts and minds, there's hundreds of names that are being prayed over. God, would you work? Lord, would you work in people's hearts? Convict people of their sin. Convince them that you are real. And show them that you offer life. Life to the full. Lord, do a work, we pray. Save people. We pray that you would bring people back to you. That you turn people around. That you bring repentance, confession. Lord, that individuals that we know and that we love who need you would be broken and then restored by You. Lord, we pray this in confident expectation that You can work. And in Jesus' name, Amen. There's an Aramaic word in your Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And um, you probably don't go there too often. Why don't you go there right now, just so we can say we have. We're going to work our way back to Luke in just a minute. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, there's an Aramaic word. Not all the translations actually give the actual Aramaic word. So I'm going to translate it into English. You know that the New Testament was not written in English. It was written primarily in Greek, except for just a few small phrases. The New Testament was written in Greek. And what we have today, thankfully, because of people who have died, quite honestly, over the last several hundred years, we have an English translation of those Greek words. And this is the very Word of God, translated from Greek. I'm holding an ESV, English Standard Version. Some of you have a New American Standard, or a New International Version, or a King James, or a New King James. And all these are very good translations of the original manuscripts of the original Word of God. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, there's a phrase that's used that, that I think I have it up on the screen. Yeah, you know where I'm headed. But it's in verse number 23. I will mention, yesterday with, with the men, we read verses 13 and 14. Let me just read those. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Yesterday we talked around a campfire about the special role of a man. Special role of a man. Significant. Be strong, men. Let all that you do be done in love, men. Now jumping over to verse 21. See the hand of, of the Lord as He worked through the hand of Paul. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He didn't dictate this to somebody who wrote it down. He's writing it with his own hand, at least this section. We believe that Paul had trouble with this vision. And so when he wrote this with his own hand, that was unique. I picture it being large and probably very sloppy. Okay, He couldn't see very well. So he writes, I write with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. He's now speaking to those who have come against him. Paul's writing the book of Corinthians because he is being attacked by people who came in after him, false teachers, who are directing people away from what Paul taught, away from Jesus. He says, listen, if they've got no love for the Lord, if they're not following Christ, then let them be accursed. And that means, quite honestly, it means let them go to hell, is what it really means. And then he says, one word, an Aramaic, it's an Aramaic word. He says, Maranatha. The only place this is used in the New Testament. The book of Corinthians was written in about the year 55 A.D., so about 20 years after Jesus was resurrected. The book of 1 Corinthians was written. And what we know from this passage and what we know from other writings of the day is that Maranatha became like a greeting that would, you would use with other believers. You know, we might walk up to somebody and say, hey man, how you doing? What's up? You know, we might do that now. Well, believers in this day would say, Maranatha. And what that meant, and what that means, is it means, our Lord, come. Come again, Jesus. Come again. The word Maranatha was a cry for Jesus to return. Remember when Jesus, he was buried, he was killed, he was buried, he was put in a tomb. He came out of that tomb three days later. He walked on the earth for 40 days. In Acts chapter 1, he ascended to be with the Father, at the right hand of the Father. Angels then came to the witnesses who saw this and they said, Why are you looking up in the sky? This Jesus is going to come back in the very same way. He's going to come again. So what we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, number 16, chapter 16 that is, is 20 years later, believers are still saying, Oh Lord, come back. You ever feel yourself praying that? You ever feel yourself thinking that? Oh God, please, come back. I'm not sure about our hearts when we say that. I'm not sure it's because we want the glory of Christ or more we just kind of want the comfort of me, right? I mean, it can be as crazy as, we talked about waiting, it can be as crazy as sitting at a red light and I'm late and I want to get somewhere because I hate to be late and I'm like, 
Oh, Jesus, I just wish you'd come back. Now, really, at that moment, when I'm just upset because I'm late, is it really the cry of my heart that God in His great glory would return? Is that really what I'm praying at that point? No. What am I really praying? That's just another way of me when I was in fifth grade praying, you know, Jesus, if you get me out of this trouble, I'll be really obedient to my mom and dad, right? That's just God, get me out of this. That's not the heart of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, though. Now go back to Luke chapter 18. Actually, it's chapter 19. We'll see the same heart in the disciples and even in Jesus. We're going to ask a question today, and... The question is really this. So Maranatha, our Lord, come. But what about until then? What are we going to do until then? Jesus is going to try to answer that for us. Now we know that that people have been saying now for 2,000 years that Jesus was going to return. People have been saying that for 2,000 years. We just saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Peter warns us, 2 Peter chapter 3, He warns us that in the last days, scoffers will come and they'll say, He's not coming back. Jesus isn't coming back. That's what they're going to say. Do people say that now? Sure. And Peter Peter warns us. He says, do not forget that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. Jesus is going to come back in a second. It could happen today. It could happen today. It could happen before before this hour ends. Jesus Christ could return. As I study the scripture, and as I study theology, I see nothing that needs to happen before Jesus Christ returns. Nothing. Nothing. Prior to the church, prior to Jesus' birth and burial and resurrection, you couldn't say that. But there is nothing that needs to happen before Jesus returns. So here's my main point for today. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And what Jesus is calling us to, in this passage we're going to read in just a second, is He's coming again. So invest in what matters. Invest in what matters. Because the Lord Jesus is coming again. Let's read the passage. I'm in verse number 11 of chapter 19. It's kind of long. Stay with me. The parable of the ten minas. As he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Catch that? They think the kingdom of God is coming, they're coming to Jerusalem. It's going to appear immediately. Kingdom of God is, a, is an eschatological term. This is Jesus is going to set up the kingdom on the earth and rule. He will rule the earth as king over all. So we know why Jesus is going to tell this story. So he said, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Now some time goes by between verse 14 and 15. We don't know what it is, but it's a time. When he returned, 
having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had been, what they had gained by doing business. Now the first came before the Lord, that is, before him, and said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. A mina, by the way, just let me tell you, is about three months' wages. Okay? It's a labor, what a laborer earns in three months. So take a quarter of your salary for a year. That's how much money they were given. Okay? And I made ten more, he says. He said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mind has made five minus. He said to him, and you are to be over five cities. He didn't say he'd been faithful, but obviously he'd been faithful. And the Lord rewarded him. Authority over five cities. Then another came and said, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. The nobleman now says to this unfaithful servant, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man? Taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the money from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Whoa! That's not what we were expecting, is it? That doesn't sound like the warm, fuzzy Santa Claus God that we hear all about, right? Now, he's got the naughty or nice thing. Okay, some people were naughty or nice, and they didn't get too much. But this slaughter thing? That's not St. Nick. I don't know who this is, but it's intense. Jesus is teaching this parable for, for a reason. And let, me just, let me just give you... Now, I won't go too much on this because this find, I find this interesting, but it can get a little boring if I drag it out too much. It's amazing how much this story mirrors a true actual event that was going on in the day. You guys have heard of King Herod, right? King Herod, when he died in 4 B.C., he left his kingdom to three different people, okay? And there was rivalry between them. Rivalry between these three who wanted to have, really, the, the Romans gave Herod control over Israel. Herod dies, says, these are, my, these are my descendants, I will give them the kingdom. There's this rivalry, almost like a civil war that goes on in Israel over who will be Herod's replacement. Now, Caesar Augustus, okay, he actually spoke up and said, this is the one that I pick. His name is Alpheus, I think. Okay, it doesn't really matter, but he chooses one. It says, this will be, this, this guy will replace Herod. Well, the Jews didn't like that. So guess what they did? They sent a delegation of people to Caesar and said, we don't want this guy as king over us. Sound familiar? Did that happen in Jesus' parable? 
We don't want, we don't want this dude to be Herod over us. Well, the Roman emperor said, too bad, he's your man. He made him the new Herod, okay, who reigned for some time. He was totally inept, okay? He, he, he totally fumbled as a leader of Israel. So you know what the Romans did? They came up with a new system. Now listen to where this is going. It's kind of interesting, really. Now Rome said, we're no longer going to have somebody that, that lives as a king over Israel. Instead, I will appoint a governor, okay? Appointed a governor over Israel. Well, the first governor, stunk. Second governor, stunk. Third governor, stunk. Fourth governor, stunk. But now you've got four governors over Israel. The whole nation is like just with a great fervor of, of really treasonous thoughts against Rome. They want rid of this power over them over Rome. And there's civil war that's, that's mounting because of this. So now Rome makes a decision. We need a powerful man who will come and oversee Israel. And who do they send? Pontius Pilate. Ah, it's amazing how all these stories now are coming together, almost like God is overseeing the whole process, huh? Pontius Pilate, who says, Don't you know to Jesus, I have the authority to let you go. And what did Jesus say to him? No authority has been given to you except for what my Father has given to you. The Lord is working out details, folks. Remember those that you prayed for? Remember the ones that you're waiting on? Remember the ones that you're burdened for? Listen, if God is superintending super large details, like who will reign as the king over Israel... If God is superintending all that, you tell me He can't handle your and my problems? He cares. So Jesus tells this story that to those who were listening, it was like, it was like a, a, a current event. Okay, This is something that was going on in the day when Jesus told this story. But Jesus told it for a different reason. He was addressing a problem. Let's put it on the screen. It's the problem of apathy. Apathy. Jesus now tells this story. I mean, what's, what's the point of this? Jesus is now directing our thoughts, the, the Spirit of God, to deal with our heart in a matter. And the matter is, it is easy for us to have no concern, no interest, no enthusiasm, to be apathetic, especially about Him Returning. I mean, because people have been saying forever that Jesus is going to return. And he hasn't returned. I mean, maybe he's not really going to keep that promise. I already addressed this. Peter already addressed it. He's coming again. So until he comes, we should invest wisely. Let's walk through this a little bit and, and try to understand what's going on. Now, you remember it says here in verse number 11 that they're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem for months. And it's been chapters of Luke. Since chapter 8, we've been traveling on the road to Jerusalem. Okay, And they are going to Jerusalem. And you need to picture that with them on the way to Jerusalem would be literally thousands of people. Thousands of people, now not necessarily in Jesus' group, but there is a mass movement to Jerusalem because it is coming to the Passover season. Okay? 
And all Jews are supposed to come to Jerusalem at Passover. So they're all coming to Jerusalem. Now, what is the Passover celebrating? I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with a passing over. Here's a Moses movie coming out at Christmas time, right? The previews look good. I don't know. I hope it is. But the Passover is celebrating when God used Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And what happened when they left Egypt? They were delivered. They were delivered. So the Passover season is one of expecting God to deliver you from something. Now, what are the Jews in 30 A.D. wanting to see God deliver them from? Answer it. What do they want to see delivered from? Rome. Rome. And how are they going to do that? How's that going to happen? The Messiah is going to come and set up a kingdom. So the first couple of verses here in our passage for today, 11 and 12, they help us understand why it is that, the, that Jesus is telling this story. Everybody's expecting him to go to Jerusalem and set up a kingdom now. And when he sets up the kingdom now, what's he going to do? He's going to slaughter all of his enemies. That's what they're expecting. That's what the Jews want. Let me tell you, I'm glad he didn't do that. Because I wouldn't exist. Okay? I'm glad he's waiting. I'm glad he hasn't set up his kingdom yesterday. Even though I want him to come, I'm glad in his grace he gave us another day. Why? For the person you prayed for? That's why. I want Jesus to come. But I'm so thankful for his grace that he's waiting. The disciples now have, have they're fallen into this thinking. Jesus, we know from Luke that they're expecting the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. They're thinking, this is it. The Romans will be destroyed. We will have power. I will have my way. This is what they're thinking. Tell me, is that the way that Christ wants us to think? I will have my way. We will have power. No. They've forgotten. They've forgotten why they were here. Let's let's look at it. So he says, A noble went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So this departing king, he's a departing king, he's, he, is, he is leaving, and when he returns, he will have a kingdom. I don't know why he's leaving. You know, this is a story that Jesus made up. This is not a real story, okay? But why might a king leave? He might leave for a military reason. He might leave to go to Rome, be given the power to, to rule as a king. We don't know. We don't know. But he goes and he leaves. He departs. He's going to come back with the kingdom. But well, he's going to come back and be a king over a kingdom. And before he goes, he speaks and he directs his servants. He called ten of them. See in verse number 13? Called ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. I like the King James, the New King James, I don't think it says this, but the King James says, Occupy until I come. I think that's pretty cool. Occupy. Now, literally, it means engage in business, but I like that King James word, occupy. So the king is departing. He gives directions to his servants. He gives them a trust. He says, here is this. And I gather from the rest of the story, he gave them each three months' salary. And he said, you engage in my business while I'm gone. Now, what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? What's a servant, what any servant is supposed to do? One thing. 
The role of a servant is to do one thing, and that is do what the master wants. So he says to them, while I'm gone, you do what I want. say, well, how do they know? How do they know? How do they know what to do? Listen, the answer is very simple. If you are a servant of a person, you know that person. You know them. And you know what they want. And so you do it. A lot of us ask questions. What does God want me to do? You know. You know. Oh, you may not know what color car He wants you to buy or what street He wants you to buy a house on or which of two wonderful jobs He wants you to accept. I know that. But on the basic, simple things, we know. Let me break it down for you if you're struggling. Love Him and love others. You work on those two and you're good to go. We know what God wants us to do. The departed king, though, he directs. Let's just understand. In Jesus' story here, you know, this is not an allegory. We've talked about the difference between an allegory and a parable. An allegory, we, we, we break it down and we say, you know, what do these minas mean? What do, this is not an allegory, it's a parable. But we still can understand some things here. The nobleman, you know from what you understand about Jesus. This is Jesus in this story. It's Jesus. And he left, he's going to leave, when he told the story, it's future, he's going to leave. And he's going to leave them for some time. And when he returns, he's going to return. And then we will stand before him, every one of us who know him. And every person who doesn't know him will also stand before him. He's going to return. Now notice that verse number 14. The citizens of this kingdom, they hated him. Now this is not the servants differentiate in your mind. You've got the servants who are given minas and occupy. But you have the citizens. They were not given this trust. They just happened to live in the land that this king has authority over and they hated him. Sound familiar? Let me tell you about John 1, verse 10 and 11. Jesus came to his own. He came to his own. Who did he come to? He came to human beings. He came to Jewish people. He came to the nation of Israel. He came to his own. In his own what? Did not receive him. Did not receive him. Yet, to all did receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. So the citizens in Jesus' story that he makes up hate him. Hate? They hate the king. They hate him so much that they cry out against him and say, we do not want this man to reign over us. Do not be surprised when the citizens of this world, I'm no longer a citizen of this world. I am not. Now, I've got to live here, but I have a heavenly citizenship. The citizens of this world hate Jesus. Quit being surprised by that, and you will save yourself a whole lot of grief and drama. Every time you turn on the news and people are speaking against God and God's ways, you get so mad. Oh, no, this just makes me so mad. Why are you even surprised? Why are you surprised? The citizens don't want kingship. The citizens of this world don't want Jesus reigning over them. What hope do they have then? What hope do they have? Same hope you had. 
When people turn to Christ, now listen, when people turn to Christ, it is only because God is drawing them. That's the only reason. So we pray for God to work in people's hearts. But in the meantime, we aren't surprised when people hate the king. But these ungrateful citizens, they are rebelling. But now let's look at the rest of the servants because he comes back. Verse number 15. When the nobleman returned, and now he comes with his kingdom. Okay, Can I tell you that Jesus is going to come back? Now, he's going to ra- I believe that the, that the Bible teaches he's going to rapture out his church, and that can happen any time, and that he will be in heaven with, his, with the church. I believe the Bible clearly teaches for seven years. And then Jesus is going to literally return, and when he returns this time, his feet are going to land on the earth, and he will bring with him all believers... It's what the Bible clearly teaches. Consistently, it teaches this. It's going to come back. And when he returns, number 15, when the noble returns, he received his kingdom, he ordered his servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. He says, servants, come. And I tell you, I think it's, it's not. It is not. When, when we come before the Lord, I want you to know, if you're a believer, it is not, you know, Mickey, little Mickey, Come out of your bedroom into the kitchen. You're in trouble. That is not how Jesus is going to call us. It's not. Christ is excited to be with His body. This is a moment where the believers of Christ are going to come to Him. And the purpose of this is reward. It's not condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a reward. Now look at the nobleman with his slaves. He returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money. He called to him that might know what they had been gained by doing business. The first one came before him, and he's excited. Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good faithful servant. Good servant. Now look what he says. Because you have been faithful... In a very little, you shall have, what, ten minas? A hundred minas? What do you think? Well, that sounds great, a hundred minas. Boy, let my wallet out. What, a hundred minas? That'd be cool, right? Uh Uh-uh. No. He gives him authority over ten cities. We just got to a whole new denomination here, okay? We're not talking minas anymore. We're talking cities. What is Jesus trying to help us understand about His return? We sacrifice a little, it says. You are faithful with a little. You are faithful with a little. And I'm going to give you much. I'm going to give you much. This is not you are faithful with your ten minas, so here's ten, you can spend them on yourself, enjoy them, buy yourself a house, a car, and really... No! This is overwhelming response. There is a little bit of faithfulness of this servant and Christ responds overwhelmingly. Ten cities. He gives authority over. He doesn't say these are yours. This is not the Mormons that are saying, this is now your planet. You can own it and populate it. Yeah, that's what they think. That is not what he's talking about. He's saying, I rule over all. Jesus saying, I rule over all. All of eternity, all of the universe, 
And to my faithful, with a little, I give you authority over it. He gives responsibility. He gives the joy of serving Christ forever. Now you might think this. Oh, great. I'm faithful in work, and he gives me more work. Are you serious? You know, I, I did this, and I did a good job, so now I've got to service these ten cities? Oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? Now, that's wrong thinking, obviously. But you need to know that when we're in heaven, we're with the Lord, we will have responsibility. We will have jobs, you might think of it that way. We will have tasks of responsibility. But the beautiful thing is, there'll be no curse. You know why work stinks? You know why you get up on Thursday morning and you're like, gosh, that alarm went off again. i got to go to work. It's because it's cursed. Picture something that you really enjoy doing, some righteous activity that you really like doing, okay? Shooting basketball, you know, fishing, golfing, cross-stitching, okay? Whatever it might be, all right? You know how you feel when you're doing that and it's going well? See, this is what Christ wanted for us. This was the garden. Adam, sit down. I'm bringing all the animals to you and name them. Adam sits there and here comes the elephant. Wow, that thing's cool. Snake slither, you know, names everyone. There was a joy. There was a joy. Following Christ is joy. Living with the citizens on this earth is cursed. We find little pockets of joy, yes. There's coming a day, though. Be joyous. So this, these remaining servants, what they did, before we get into more of what Jesus, well, the nobleman does, the, 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 the servants invested. Now, this may sound like, how are we doing on time? Be careful here, okay. This may sound like Matthew chapter 25. You've heard of the parable of the talents? You ever heard that one? All right, parable of the talents is very similar. You can look at it, okay? And it's not the same parable, but it's very, very similar. In the parable of the talents, talent there was another measurement of money. It's much larger than a mina, okay? It's much, much larger. A talent is, I don't know how many minas make a talent. I'm not a, you know, first century banker. I don't remember right now. But a talent is a large sum of money, okay? And again, a, a powerful man gives out talents to people. Large measures of money. And it's different in amount of monies. The ten servants all got the same amount. The talent, they didn't. Okay? Now the word talent has, has grown to mean in our English language over the years, very likely because of this story of the Matthew chapter 25 parable of the talents, the word talent has grown to mean ability. Skill. Oh, you got a real talent for such and such. Right? Parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 is talking about that each of us have been given an ability, a skill, a, a gift of the Lord. And we are responsible for how we use that. And if you are more talented than you, then you have greater accountability for that talent than they do. James 3 says, not all of you ought to be teachers because your accountability will be greater. There's different accountability for ability that's given, for talent that's given, for gifting that's given. But the minor. Everybody got the same. Everybody got the same. Hmm. What are we entrusted 
with, and I use that word to try to trigger in your mind 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 potentially, what are we entrusted with that every one of us have the same? 1 Thessalonians 2 says that we've been entrusted with the gospel. Every one of us. We've been entrusted with the gospel. And we are stewards of the gospel. You know what Jesus is trying to say? You've been given the truth. You've been given the gospel. You know the truth about who Jesus is. You know the truth about man. You know the truth about eternity. You know the truth about forgiveness. What are you going to do with it? The one guy invested greatly. It was little, just a little thing that he did. But he did it a lot. And God multiplied it. The five guy, he invested too, faithfully. But the one guy, not so much. Not so much. Let me read to you 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man. Now listen. But to please God who tests our hearts. We must be faithful in how we invest the gospel. You say, well, wait a minute, Lowell, this isn't fair. How can this be fair of the nobleman? How can this be fair of Jesus? I can't make people get saved. I cannot, you know, I've shared the gospel with somebody one time and they said no. And I said, well, that's it. I'm never doing it again. Listen, that's not faithless in a little thing. Let me, let me give you a recipe, okay? Let me give you a little recipe. You can write this down and put it in a Index, index card and put it in a box if you want to. But here's what it is. Take an unbeliever. Mix in a believer who's faithful and throw the gospel in there. Mix that up with enough time and enough of that and somebody's getting saved. Why? Because the gospel is powerful. The gospel is powerful. I want to use an example, and I hope you can handle it, but I'll talk about Pastor Billy here. Now, you've got to be careful with glory, because the only person that deserves it, the only person that can handle it, is God. But I've been there with Pastor Billy when he just shared the gospel with somebody. And I heard him, and I thought, boy, I'd have done a better job than that. Not really, but you know those thoughts come in your mind, right? I can't believe he said that. I would have said this. See, I'm thinking like a human. I'm thinking like a man. But to share the basic truth of the gospel. And I'm sort of listening. And a few minutes later, doesn't always happen. My Billy comes over to the office like, hey, so-and-so just got saved. Really? That's pretty cool. Anything magical about him? Nope. Anything good or quality or more effective than you? Nope. Three ingredients. An unbeliever, a believer who's willing to be faithful, and the gospel. You mix that up, somebody's getting saved. Somebody's getting saved. Invest. I know people say, no, don't be surprised. The citizens don't want the king. I know that. 
Don't be surprised by that. The citizens don't want him to reign over them. But once in a while, God pricks a heart. Somebody responds. So the king returns. Let's walk through it. Verse number 15. He returns. We already saw him deal with the ten. The, the first one, the ten, made ten minus more. The, the second one has the five in his hands. Okay? So he rewards that guy. He rewards both of them. Let's look at verse number 20. Then another king. Can I just tell you, I don't want to, don't want to drag this out too far, but the word another here is interesting. There's two ways you can say another. Okay? One way one is, means it, it's, it's another of the same kind. I've heard it taught this way. You have a cheeseburger, a cheeseburger, a cheeseburger, and another one. At McDonald's, you get a cheeseburger. They're always the same, but it's another one. Okay? Or you can go, you know, and order a cheeseburger and order a other sandwich and get a McChicken. Okay? It's a whole different type of animal, right? That's this word. This third servant is completely different. It's not another, meaning one of the same type. It's completely different. Let's see the difference. Lord, here's your mina. I hid it. I kept it in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you. And listen to what he says to the nobleman. I want you to see. He accuses the nobleman of being a thief. He so doesn't know the nobleman. He so doesn't know his master that he accuses him of taking things that don't belong to him. You talk about not knowing the character of your master. Listen to his words. For I was afraid of you. Why? Because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. I know how you are. Even when you don't don't plant the field, you come and take it all for yourself. Yeah, that's the kind of person you are. I see that. You're a taker. And you reap what you do not sow. So all these things happen and you just come in like a thief and just steal it all for yourself. I know how you are. So I hid it. And then the Lord rebukes him heavily. Well, the nobleman rebukes him heavily and says, that's the kind of man I am? All right. I'll give you exactly what you are expecting. Take it from him and give it to the guy with ten. I'm immediately reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You should go there. It would do you good to read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's coming a day we're going to stand before the Lord. He's going to rebuke some people. He is. And the rebuke will almost be nonverbal. It's, 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 it's the experience that is rebuking. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now there's no condemnation here. Okay, Nobody goes to hell that's in this passage. But there is a sad day for one. Now let's read it. Verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest. That means revealed. Okay? So it's, it's hidden and it will be revealed. For the day, capital D in my Bible, because it's a definite article, there's only one, the day. This is the, what we call the Bema Seat of Christ. The day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. Now don't think hell. It's not talking about hell. This is talking about taking away everything that's hidden. Okay, This is talking about making things manifest. Fire it just burns away everything that we might use to hide. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work 
that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is somebody running out of a burning home. And yeah, they survive, but all they have is the smell of the smoke on their body. Because everything else is gone. Listen, if you're saved today, praise God. That is wonderful. God's given you a minor. It's called the gospel. And what he wants is you to do just a little thing. He doesn't need you to part seas. Can I tell you, I am so thankful for the truth. That we can just open up God's Word and we can explain it. And this is not dependent upon me. If I had to, you know, dazzle you and all this stuff with my ability to dance and sing and all that kind of... We would be sunk. But all we got to do is point to Jesus Christ and His Word. And that's a little thing. And that's all you got to do and that's all I got to do. And be faithful in that. Faithful to do what the Master's called us to do. Just finishing out the passage. He does deal with the citizens. And it's, it's, it's so striking that it's on the edge of comical of, of the way this ends. Until you realize it's talking about people. But as for these enemies of mine, the ones who would not receive Him, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here. And slay them violently is what the word means. Slaughter. Let me tell you, those words are going to mean a whole lot to disciples in just over a week. Because just over a week later, those people who don't want Jesus are going to cry out as a crowd saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And then the Romans are going to come forward and they're going to do just that. And the disciples are going to scatter in fear. But they're going to be burdened because those who reject Him will one day stand before Him and He will say, Depart from Me. I never knew you. And prepared for that person is an everlasting separation from God called the lake fire. Folks, we have a message to take. Let's be faithful in that little thing. This point to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, burden us. We've already prayed for people who are heavy in our heart. Maybe we're supposed to go to talk to them today, Lord. Maybe that's what faithfulness looks like. I don't know. Lord, we lift up people to you. God, I lift up our church. Lord, if we'd be a church that'd be faithful in this little thing, of proclaiming the gospel, what glory you would get. Lord, may we be that kind of a body of believers who don't have to produce, who don't have to fabricate, who don't have to dazzle, but just point people to you faithfully. Now listen as we pray. Would you ask God right now, who's one? And you will pray and ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to be faithful with very little this week. Lord, thank you for the burden that you give us. 
Thank you for the glory of knowing you, for the opportunity to worship you, for the truth that we have been given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.